Well, as I announced several weeks ago, after 12 years of service here at Central, I will be taking a sabbatical this summer together with my family. So yet a little while, and you will see me no longer. And where I am going, you cannot come. <laughs> well, after all these years, I think it'll good for, be good for me to take a step back to reflect and to recharge and to prepare for the next season of ministry here at Central. So thank you for all of your kind words and well wishes. I'm very grateful for your support, and I know that we'll all benefit from this time away. So today, I'd like us to close our current sermon series on spiritual growth. We've been talking about how you'll never become the person that God has always destined you to be until you learn how to grow spiritually. You'll never become the fullest version of yourself apart from God for the simple reason that he created you to be united to him, and therefore there really is no ultimate meaning or purpose or satisfaction or joy apart from God. So rather than creating your own identity by trying to find yourself, you discover who you really are by being found in Christ. So what we've been saying is that to be a Christian means that you undergo a transfer of trust. You transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus for your standing before God. And God accepts you, not on the basis of your record or your performance, but on the basis of Jesus' record and his performance. So what all that means is that God relates to us on the basis of grace rather than merit. Now, some people, when they hear this, they think to themselves, well, gosh, this sounds like a great deal. If God accepts us on the basis of grace rather than merit, then I can live my life however way I want. The philosopher Voltaire mockingly once put it like this. He said, of course God will forgive. That is his job. Or the poet W.H. Alden said, well, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Now, if you've never had that thought, or if you've never been tempted by that thought, perhaps you've never really heard the gospel at all, because the gospel is radical because it is so free. And yet, on the other hand, if you think that God's grace gives you license to do whatever you want, then you haven't heard it, you haven't understood it, you haven't really experienced it truly because God's grace always leads to a changed life. If grace, then growth. If you're saved by grace, then you will grow by grace. But the question is why, and how, and so what? And those are the questions that I'd like us to take up this morning. Why does grace lead to growth? How does grace lead to growth? And so what? What difference does it make? So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Romans chapter 6. You'll find this passage printed on page 942 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? 
Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a transformative encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's ask the question, why? Why does grace lead to growth? Now, Paul begins this section of his letter to the Romans by posing the hypothetical question that we are asking. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, he's asking, should we just keep on sinning so that we can keep on experiencing more grace? Now, you might think that's a crazy question, but it's not. And I've heard people over the years ask it in a variety of different ways. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright provides this thought experiment. Most of us are familiar with the famous parable of the prodigal son. The younger son and the family ask for his inheritance, and then he goes off into the far country and lives a life of reckless waste. But eventually, he hits rock bottom, and he comes to his senses, and he thinks to himself, well, I had it better at home, so maybe I'll go home in disgrace and I don't expect my father to take me back as his son, but maybe he'll take me back as a servant. But what he couldn't have anticipated is that before he even reaches the door, his father runs out to him and throws his arm around him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and throws a party for him while his older brother pouts. Now, the father throws this celebration because his son was dead but is alive again. He was lost but now is found. But let's imagine that a couple years go by and the father gets a little bit older and the older brother is merely tolerating the younger brother's life and existence. And once the younger son sort of settles into the humdrum routine of normal life at home, he starts to wonder. He starts to wonder, well, what if I did it again? What if I took a little money from my dad, really borrowing it from my older brother, and just went out and had a good time, and once I've had my fun, I could come back, and maybe my dad would welcome me back like he did the first time. Maybe he'll throw a party for me again. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. Now, you might think that that's a preposterous situation, but it's not, because I can tell you down through the years, there's many, many people who have suggested the same thing. Why not presume upon God's grace? God will take us back because that's his job. So what's wrong with this way of thinking? Well, the message of the gospel is a message of grace. God accepts you, not on the basis of who you are or what you've done, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But some people worry, well, if that is the case, if God accepts us on the basis of grace rather than merit, well, then there's no incentive. There's no incentive to live a holy life. But that fundamentally misunderstands how God's grace actually works. You see, if God freely showers his love upon you, Grace doesn't take away the incentive to live your life for God. No, grace changes you. God's love changes you. So let me give you another analogy. Let's say you fall in love with someone, 
and you're hoping that they'll marry you. So you take them out on dates. You go for long walks in the park and romantic dinners at fine restaurants around the city. You send her flowers to let her know that you're thinking about her. You write notes expressing your, your deepest thoughts and feelings. And all this time, she's looking your life over. She's examining you, trying to figure out, well, what kind of a man are you? Who are your friends? Are you a person of character and integrity? How do you handle criticism? How do you communicate? How do you handle and manage conflict? But after enough time has gone by, you finally summon the courage and you ask her to marry you. You pop the question and she says, yes. But let's imagine that after the wedding day, you turn to this person you love and you say, well, now that we're married, I don't think we actually need to spend much time together anymore. I don't think it's really important for us to go on any more dates. Uh, I, I don't really want to talk all that much. Uh, I'm not going to give you gifts and I'm not going to write you notes. Now, that would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. Because if you love someone, if you're married to someone, you want your love to grow. And so it is in our relationship with God. If you're united to Jesus by faith, then your love will grow. You will grow. So grace doesn't take away the incentive to live a holy life. Grace always leads to a changed life. And that's what Paul is saying here in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Now, I have to tell you, that's another rather tame translation of the Greek. It's a very dignified way of expressing Paul's sentiments here. But my New Testament professor from seminary said, here's a better translation. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Hell no. Hell no. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Now, he goes on to use the imagery of baptism. And baptism represents a kind of death and resurrection, a death to our old life and a rising again to our new life. So he's using the imagery of baptism, but what Paul's really talking about here is union with Christ. And as I've been saying over the last several weeks, the best analogy for union with Christ is marriage. Because when a couple comes together, assuming there's no prenuptial agreement, which I don't support, assuming there's no prenuptial agreement, then everything that belongs to the one belongs to the other. Everything that is his becomes yours. Everything that is yours becomes his. So when you put your faith in Christ, he takes your sin, your guilt, your death, and he gives you his innocence, his righteousness, and his life. So when you're united to Jesus by faith, everything that is true of him becomes true of you. And that's precisely what Paul is talking about in this passage. He says that if Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin and you're united to him by faith, well, then you have died. You have died to your old life. The power of sin over you has been broken. You're dead to that old life. It no longer has any power over you. And if Jesus has been raised to new life with a new physical body and he's entered into a whole new mode of existence and you are united to him by faith, well, then you have been raised to new life. You're not the same person anymore. You've received a whole new identity. The life of the future has already broken into the present. You are already now living out the life of God's promised future. So if you have died to your old life, then it is inconceivable, inconceivable that you would continue to live in it. Those who have been connected to Jesus by faith 
can never be the same again. If you are saved by grace, you will grow. But that brings us to our second question, how? Well, how does grace lead to growth? How do you actually do it? How do you grow in grace? Now, it's very important to see that whenever Paul is encouraging us to grow up into maturity, he's never telling us to try really, really hard to become something that you're not. Paul never says, try really hard to become something that you're not. Rather, he says, be who you already are. Be who you already are as a result of God's grace in your life. And you see, this is what separates Christianity from moralistic religion on the one hand and relativistic license on the other. See, the moralist would say, well, if I'm really good, if I obey God, then God will love me and accept me. So if I obey, then God will love me. The relativist, by contrast, says, well, it doesn't really matter how I live my life because no matter what I do, God will accept me. Why? Because that's his job. But the Christian says, God accepts me by sheer grace in and through what Jesus has accomplished for me, and therefore I strive to love him and serve him and please him, not because I have to, but because I want to. Not in order to try to win his love, but in response to it, to demonstrate that I already have it. If you love someone, your love will grow. And the more you experience God's love for you through the gospel, the more you will grow in grace. So that's the logic of what Paul is saying in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see that if we're united with Jesus in his death, then we are united with him in his new life. And if we have died to our old life, it is because we're called to live in newness of life. But the real question is how? What does this actually look like in practice? How do you do it? Well, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, two things happen. First, God justifies you, meaning God puts you in right relationship with himself. And it happens in a moment. But at the very same time, God sanctifies you. He begins the process of making you actually like Jesus. And that's a process that'll go on through our whole lives. But these two things, justification and sanctification, being put in right relationship with God and becoming more and more like Jesus are distinguishable, but they can never be separated from one another. John Calvin called them the double grace of our union with Christ. The moment we're united to Jesus by faith, we receive this double grace, justification and sanctification. And so what I'd like us to do for a few moments is consider what does sanctification look like? How does it work in practice? So let me give you three thoughts. Christian growth is organic, not mechanical. It is natural, but it's not automatic. And it is gradual, not instantaneous. See, first of all, Christian growth is organic, not mechanical. I think many of us would probably prefer some kind of mechanical solution. So what do I mean by mechanical? Well, mechanical means you plug in X and you get Y. And when it comes to the Christian life, a lot of us wish it was mechanical. We wish people would just give us a list of things to do. Here are the five easy steps to growing as a Christian. Because we do that in many, many other areas of life. Like washing your clothes in the washing machine. There's five easy steps for washing your clothes. Sort the lights from the darks and put them in the washer. Add the detergent. 
Choose the, the temperature and the wash cycle and the load size. And then press start and presto changeo. Your clothes are washed. But it doesn't work that way in the Christian life. The Christian growth that we are seeking is not mechanical, it's organic. It's a little bit more like nurturing a plant, and that's why Jesus himself famously used an organic image. He said that he's the vine and we're the branches, and that apart from him, we can do nothing. But if we abide in him, if we remain in him, if we stay put in him, well, then we will grow. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. It would be a natural progression. Francis Schaeffer, the pastor and theologian, said that neither God nor human beings are machines. We're persons. And therefore, there is no mechanical solution. He writes, it's obvious that there is no mechanical solution to true spirituality or the true Christian life. Anything that has the mark of the mechanical upon it is a mistake. It's not possible to say, read so many chapters of the Bible every day and you will have this much sanctification. It's not possible to say, pray so long every day and you will have a certain amount of sanctification. It's not possible to add the two together and to say, you will have this big a piece of sanctification. This is a purely mechanical solution and it denies the whole Christian position. For the fact is that the Christian life, true spirituality, can never have a mechanical solution. The real solution is being cast up into the moment-by-moment communion, personal communion with God himself and letting Christ's truth flow through me through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So Christian growth is organic, not mechanical. And then secondly, it is natural, but it's not automatic. See, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, well, then you will grow. But just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's automatic. Just because it's organic doesn't mean that it will happen instantaneously. So you need to tend the Christian life in the same way that you would tend to plant. You've got to make sure that's got good soil, that it gets water and plenty of sunlight. So growth requires deliberate action on our part, but action of a particular sort. And this is where I think a lot of people get confused. Most of us understand that you begin the Christian life by relying on Jesus and what he does for us. But then we think that the way in which we grow in the Christian life is by relying on ourselves and what we do for God. But that is to throw the gospel in reverse. And now we're relying on ourselves rather than relying on Jesus for our growth and grace. We're right back to thinking that it's all up to us and our hard work and effort. It's all up to us and our discipline and our moral performance. But no, the way in which we grow in the Christian life is the same way in which we begin. It is by resting on and relying on Jesus rather than ourselves. So the pastor and theologian J.I. Uh, Packer had a great way of defining this, and I included this quotation in the beginning of your order of worship. He said that the way in which we change, the way in which we grow as Christians is not through activism nor apathy, it's not through human activism or self-reliant activity, but nor is it the result of God-reliant passivity, as if we're just waiting around for God to zap us and make us more like Jesus. 
So it's not activism nor apathy, but rather the way in which we grow is through what he calls dependent effort. And I love that expression, dependent effort. There is effort that we're supposed to put forth in order to grow as Christians, but the effort we put forward is learning to depend on Jesus more and more. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. How do you remain in something? How do you depend on something? How do you abide in something? You recognize that you are not sufficient in yourself for these things, and you must turn to Jesus more and more every day in order to express your utter dependence upon him for everything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So Packer writes, God's method of sanctification is neither activism, self-reliant activity, nor apathy, God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. Knowing that without Christ's enabling, we can do nothing, morally speaking, as we should, and that he is ready to strengthen us for all that we have to do, we stay put, we remain, we abide in Christ, asking for help constantly, and we receive it. So the way in which we grow is by asking for help constantly, and we receive it. That is God-dependent effort. So Christian growth is organic, not mechanical. It is natural, but it's not automatic. And then finally, it's gradual, not instantaneous. Justification happens in a moment, but sanctification is the result of a lifelong process. The fact is that the moment you trust in Jesus, you receive a, a whole new identity. You're no longer the same person. Now you have the power and the ability to live differently, but nevertheless, this new life won't be easy. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. There are no quick fixes. You're going to experience setbacks and lapses in judgment and moral failures, but just give it time. Because if you are truly united to Jesus, then you will grow. And the reason why is because it's not up to you. Jesus promises that he will finish the good work that has begun in you. It doesn't depend on you, it depends on him. And he will see it through to the end, and that is what gives us hope. So if you're saved by grace, you will grow by grace. But finally, let's ask the question, so what? Who cares? What difference does this make? Well, the point that I'm trying to make is that all of us, all of us, have a very, very long way to go. None of us have arrived. None of us are mature in the Christian faith. And if you think you are, you're probably not. If you think you're mature, you probably have the farthest to go. All of us really are just little kids, wondering what it'll be like when we finally become grown-ups. But the encouraging thing here is that if you are in Christ, well, then you already have everything you need. You already have everything you need in order to grow up into maturity. You, there's nothing you need in addition to or alongside of Jesus. You have everything at your disposal in order to grow up into Christ. And that's why Paul uses such intriguing expressions to describe what it means to become a mature Christian. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, to grow up into Christ. Or in Galatians 3 and in Romans 13, he tells us to put on Christ. Such an interesting expression, to put on Christ like you would put on a set of clothes. So as we, uh, as we close, I'd like us to consider this one final image, 
What does it mean to put on Christ in order to grow? Because that image brings justification and sanctification together. If we put on Christ, if we are dressed in his righteousness, well, then we know who we are, and we also know who we are to become in him. Now, I don't know if this was true when you were a kid, but when I was in elementary school, every year, at the beginning of the year, in the fall, we would have to ask our dads for an old shirt, which we would take to school, and then we would use that as our smock for art class. Did you have to do that? Do they still do that today? I don't know. If you've ever met my dad, you know that my dad is a dapper dresser. He worked at a men's clothing store when he was a young person, so he always knows how to dress well. So every fall, when I would show up at school and I'd have to bring in a shirt for art class, what did I bring? A white, starched, button-down dress shirt, complete with French cuffs (laughs) and a monogram on the shirt pocket. I was looking good every year. So just picture me, eight-year-old boy in my dad's white dress shirt, French cuffs, (laughs) monogram shirt pocket. But that is such a perfect image of what it means to be dressed in Christ. Right now, at this moment, you are dressed in his righteousness. You're fully clothed. There's nothing more you need for life or salvation. The only problem is you have not yet grown up into those clothes. Those clothes do not fit you yet. But give them time, and they will. You know, people say, like father, like son. And that's true. We're not only supposed to grow up and to become like Christ, but we're supposed to grow up and become like our heavenly father. That's what Jesus famously said in the Sermon in the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And a better translation of that word perfect might be whole, mature, complete. Be complete as your heavenly father is complete. And the point is that if you have embraced Jesus by faith, if you are dressed in his righteousness, then you already have everything you need. You know who you are. You've received a new identity in Christ. You've received this status in his eyes that cannot fluctuate or change. You have been adopted as God's child. And now you're simply being asked to grow up into that truth until that becomes the reality that defines your life in every single way. And so when you think of this imagery of putting on Christ, being dressed in his righteousness and growing up into maturity in Christ, think of me as that eight-year-old boy in my dad's dress shirt. It looks a little ridiculous. It doesn't quite fit me yet, but one day it will. And so it is with Christ's righteousness. One day we will grow up into that truth. But you see, the beauty of all of this is that when it comes to Christian growth, Paul's not telling us to try to strive to attain something that seems impossibly out of reach. But rather, he's calling us to simply lay hold of a truth, a reality that's already ours. It's already at our disposal. In Christ, we have everything we need. And so the the challenge for us is to simply lay hold of that truth. God never asks you to try to become something that you're not. But rather, he calls you to be who you already are by his grace. If you're saved by grace, then you'll grow by grace. If you place your trust in Jesus for your relationship with God, you will grow because faith so unites you to Jesus that everything that is true of him becomes true of you. And the way in which we grow is simply by remembering those truths, 
reminding ourselves of them in order to work them deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our lives. John Stott once wrote this. He said, in practice, we should constantly be reminding ourselves of who we are. We need to learn to talk to ourselves and ask ourselves questions. Don't you know? Don't you know the meaning of your conversion and your baptism? Don't you know that you've been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection? Don't you know these things? Don't you know who you are? We must go on pressing ourselves with such questions until we reply to ourselves, yes, I do know who I am, a new person in Christ, and by the grace of God, I shall live accordingly. Jesus is not asking you to try to become something that you're not. He's calling you to be who you already are by his grace. And the single most important thing that you can do day in, day out, week in, week out, is simply remind yourselves of those truths until you grow up into maturity in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, all of us have a long, long way to go. We really are just little kids wondering what it'll be like when we finally become grown-ups. But help us to see that even now, as we put our faith and trust in you, we are fully dressed in Christ. When we are dressed in his righteousness, there's nothing more we need in addition to or alongside of Jesus. In him, we are complete. And so we thank you for the fact that you have put us in right relationship with yourself now. And that can never change. And now we simply ask that you would remind us of who we are in Christ so that we might grow up into that reality and become the truest, fullest version of ourselves. We pray that you would do that work in us by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.